Hello, I'm Helen Daly. Welcome to Build It, Thou Come. I think we had $70,000 initially to buy the furniture and all that sort of stuff. And then we obviously made some money along the journey and then used a lot of leverage to buy the properties. And, and we sort of yeah, had a million dollars between us after the property's been sold and, and get repaid. Serial entrepreneur, business journalist, and more recently, young rich lister Adam Schwab left a corporate law career at one of the large Melbourne firms to pursue a dream with a schoolmate, much to his mother's chagrin. Well, that dream of starting something small on their own turned into a successful reality when the friends virtually stumbled into launching a corporate apartment business. Well, that business was definitely a roller coaster ride, complete with all-out war on bedbugs, and you'll have to listen to find out what happened there. Adam Schwab and his friend went on to make enough seed money in the corporate apartment and property game to help them co-found other businesses before they then created and founded Luxury Escapes. The pair has now built Luxury Escapes Travel Deals website into one of Australia's most successful new brands in the entire travel sector. It was named our fastest growing company by BRW in 2013 and by the Australian Financial Review in 2017. Adam Schwab has made it onto the young rich list since 2014 and he's now become a dedicated angel investor himself in other startups. And the pair have achieved all this success in just seven years. Adam Schwab, thank you so much for joining me on Build It, Thou Come. Thanks, Alan. Thanks for having me. Now, you've been a corporate lawyer. You've been a journalist, and I've interviewed you before in the past, and business commentator. You moved into the digital online e-commerce space. You began Luxury Escapes. How did that happen that you got out of corporate law and into the digital space and into being an entrepreneur? Yeah, it was it was back in two thousand and four. So before being an entrepreneur, it was cool like it is now. So myself and a, a, one of my best mates from school, Jeremy Same, we both we were both in corporate jobs. He was at ANZ as a trader, and I was an M and A lawyer at Three Hills. And we both wanted to do something a bit more commercial, a bit more for ourselves. And I was having a great time at, at Three Hills and, and loved it there. But but I think knew that I wasn't going to be a lawyer forever. And there's some super smart people there, and and you know, I probably just didn't have a great personality for a lawyer. So being a lawyer, and so we just had, had our eye out. Well, it was 24 at the time, maybe 25. Had our eye out for is there something else we could do? And as it happened, my I had a girlfriend then who was from Scotland, and she had friends over from Scotland who were staying in this pretty terrible apartment in a street called Grey Street in St Kilda, which is where a lot of prostitutes are, and and it wasn't particularly nice. And and I went there and asked what they were paying, and they said they were paying. It was $150 per person per week. But I think there was five people in the apartment. But there's some really quick maths in our head, uh, in my head and thought, well, they're getting, someone's getting $750 a week in rent in this place. They're probably paying 300 bucks a week in rent back in 04. I'm sure we can do this a lot better. So I spoke to Jeremy and told him the idea. And we just sort of started from there and, and rented out. We were both living at home or whatever time. So our first ever apartment we rented was was for this business. So was, so just a minute, the business model was you would rent an apartment from someone else. So you didn't buy yeah. it, you rented it. You could then sublet it for a much higher rate. Yeah, exactly. So and, and the aim was we'd, we'd find sort of high-end backpackers, so people who were staying in Australia for two, three, six months. So they weren't able to get their own apartment lease because your leases are usually 12 months. And nor do they want to buy furniture. So what we thought was we'll, we'll buy the furniture, we'll take the lease out, 
it's like a really bad version of Airbnb. Yeah, I was going to say, it's like the the precursor to Airbnb. Yeah, Airbnb is a platform and and it's such an amazing business. And we were the principal, so we took the risk of a vacancy. So we'd pay the the landlord and we'd go through normal agents. And if we could fill it, we'd make a profit. And if it was empty, we'd we'd make a loss. And obviously, we'd get furniture and we went – when we started, we had no idea what we were doing. So I went with my dad's trailer and would buy secondhand furniture from all, all, all around Melbourne and all lifted in the trailer. And I wasn't very good at driving the trailer and <laughs> almost crashed a few times. And, and we sort of just, just, it was really sort of trial, the whole business was trial and error. So what you're living at home, you said, how old? 24? Yeah. 24. So we ended up, we would have moved out around that time anyway, but because we wanted to save every cent for the business, we thought, well, Better off just staying at home for a little bit longer rather than, than moving out. We both moved out probably a year later. Were you still working at Freehills? Was this sort of still a side gig? Yeah. So for, for the first three months, I took a leave of absence. So I, took, I took a six-month leave of absence. And then three months in, I, I went and spoke to the partners who I worked for and said, I think we'll just keep going with the business. And, and certainly no tears were shed from, from our end and they wished me the best. And well, I, I still play football with Freehills for 10 years and skied with them for a number of years. So I maintain a, a great connection to the firm and um, yeah. I think it was a win-win. Absolutely. So how did this accommodation business go? Uh, it went okay. Uh, it, was, it was never going to be a, a multi-massive sort of business. But we, I think, and also we realised probably within two or three years that, that backpacker apartments had some externalities. And when we started the business, the, the Melbourne rental market was really depressed. So landlords were really happy to lease apartments to us. As time passed, the rental market tightened a lot and landlords thought, well, maybe we won't, we won't backpack in the apartment. Maybe we want to get a different sort of tenant. So we realized over that time that we needed to pivot the business. So we pivoted to a, a corporate apartments business, which was essentially the same thing, but, but renting properties to bankers and lawyers and IT experts coming from the US or India or the UK or, or Europe and or interstate. So it was a, a similar business, but it would be one corporate tenant per apartment staying for sort of three to six to 12 months. Uh, and we did the cleaning and the, and the utilities and the Foxtel and the internet and all that sort of stuff. Were you still renting out these apartments? You were renting it from a landlord? Yeah, that's right. We did. That's a good question because at that time, we started noticing that the rental market was tightening a lot. It was about 06, maybe 07, and we were struggling to get apartments rented. So we thought, well, we can actually positively gear these these properties. So we actually bought half a dozen properties and using a lot of leverage, about 97% <laughs> leverage, I think, at the time. And neither Jerry and myself particularly liked debt. So we did buy the properties and we spent the, the capital value appreciated and we, we dressed them up and sold them probably two years later and then made a million dollar sort of lucky windfall and wow. used that windfall to invest in future staff. But it was the operating business was profitable, not ridiculously. Maybe it was making two or three hundred thousand dollars a year. Uh, but the, we we got this really lucky windfall, certainly for us as twenty eight year olds at the time, from sort of buying and selling these properties using a lot of debt. Which is a bit of an age-old Australian story, isn't it? Making dough out of property in yeah, Sydney exactly. or Melbourne. So what did your folks think about this? I mean, firstly, did they, when you said you leveraged up, did did you borrow from them or did you go to a bank? No, it was all banks, all through CBA and I think St. George potentially the last two lines. But yeah, it was all through so the big banks, yeah. mortgage broker. Uh, so we, we used our own capital to start. The, I think we had $70,000 initially to buy the furniture and all that sort of stuff and then we obviously made some money along the journey and then used a lot of leverage to buy the properties and, and then sort of yeah, had a million dollars between us clear after the property's been sold and, and get repaid. Fantastic. At 28, well done. Yeah. <laughs> so what did mum and dad think about you leaving your corporate law career? 
I don't think mum was super happy. <laughs> I, I think she sort of understood that what we wanted to do. And, and this is before, I think you look at it now, and I speak to lots of young entrepreneurs now and you get people, you, you get, uh, talk to 30 people, 30, 25 year olds and you know, people coming up to you and saying, I work at Goldman Sachs, I want to start my own business. But back in 2004, this is pre-Zuckerberg, mm. this is pre-Instagram, mm. this is pre-WhatsApp, this is before entrepreneurialism was cool. It was very different. So not just my parents, but I think everybody looked at us like we were crazy when we left our corporate jobs. And it's just a very different, um, I'm not sure if you notice in the people you interview, but a very different mentality now. Back then, being an entrepreneur was Alan Bond and Christmas Skates. It yeah. Was, it was a dirty word. Now it's it's not like that at all, which is which is really great to see as someone who's sort of been lucky enough to live through that transition. Yeah, exactly. So in this, let's call it your corporate accommodation business, was that a steep learning curve? Was it sort of chaotic? Were you learning on the go? Were you making kind of massive or minor mistakes all the time? Yeah, we're making a lot of mistakes. <laughs> it's a, we call it our six-year apprenticeship. And we <laughs> and it was just amazing. We were just so lucky to be able to do that at that stage in, in our life. Yeah. We had no wives, no kids, so no, yes. no debt, no house, no mortgage. So it gave us a really good chance to, to try stuff. And uh, essentially our benchmark was, are we taking home roughly what we would have taken home or what our friends are taking home in corporate jobs? And that was sort of our only rough bench. And even if we fell under it, so be it. Uh, but that was our, our vague benchmark. But we were making... We didn't know what we were doing. We were completely clueless, and I argue that still holds to this day. But, <laughs> but certainly, uh, one, obviously, there's, there's so many instances. But one time where we, so we had our first, we had, we had backpackers in our apartments, and little did we know that back in sort of those five, oh six, or seven, there was a bed bug pandemic. <gasps> so what, oh. what was unfortunately happening is they used to use this chemical called, I think it was DDT or something, which killed bed bugs, and then. Someone made made it illegal. Yes, it's it's pretty toxic, DDT. They made it they made it illegal, and what that meant was people would come, backpackers would come, stay in Queensland in Cairns and, and these kind of places, and completely innocently, without realising it, get bed bugs sticking to that bag, to that oh, clothes. They'd yeah. fly to Melbourne and come and move in with us and give us bed bugs, <laughs> and we were they were innocent and we were innocent, but that's that's sort of it is what it is. But when we first heard about this, we we had a few apartments and these big buildings, and we had this tenant calling us up and say, well, I think I've got bed bugs. I said, well, I don't know, that could have happened because there weren't any before you came. But <laughs> there's no way of proving that. But So what we had to do was try a way to remove them. But when we got, you call these bed bug removals, and they cost $1,000 yeah. to come in. So Jeremy is a, a great out-of-the-box thinker, and he was doing some research on the internet, and he saw that bed bugs get killed by heat. So what we what we thought was, why don't we try and kill them with heat? And in the apartment building, this big fancy apartment building in the city, there was a sauna downstairs. So I thought, well, let's get the beds. We'll put them in a sauna. We'll go and have a swim for an hour, and hopefully, that'll kill them. Uh, so, <laughs> Wait, just a minute. You moved the beds from the apartment down into the sauna. Yeah, exactly. In the lift, and we moved them down. <laughs> you mad things. And the sauna was filled with beds. And someone, you saw these people coming to use the sauna. They saw these beds, and they sort of went away. And we put them in the sauna. We had a swim for an hour or two. Came back, and sadly, the hypothesis wasn't true. The bed bugs survived, and we paid a thousand bucks to, to kill them. Eventually, we found that, and to the trial and error point, eventually we found this amazing guy who's probably the best bed bug guy in Melbourne. He's, he can get rid of every time. But so it took a fair bit of trial and error, but we got there in the end, uh, and solved that bed bug problem. Yeah. So essentially, I mean, they're these, you know, they're the sort of things that are sent to try you that you could never put down on paper when you're doing a plan for a corporate accommodation business. Yeah, we just, you just don't know what you've done. I, I think the, I think the two skills every entrepreneur I think really needs, and I, I know that you, you you know this as well, is you need to be able to sell because unless you can sell, you might not you can't run a business, and you need to be able to problem solve. Probably the two biggest 
qualities I look for when I'm investing in someone and I think is what's really needed to, to start a business and to grow a business. And when you say problem solve, you mean something probably deeper than just working out how to get rid of bed bugs without it costing you a small fortune. Well, that's just a small, a small example. And, and you literally have hundreds and hundreds of these examples of how do you, yeah. how do you market your business cost effectively? So how do you get the lowest cost of acquisition of customer? When you're running a corporate apartments business, it's very different to running a travel business, very different to running a online art gallery. Every, every business has its own nuances on how you sell, but essentially, we're all, every entrepreneur is trying to sell a product at a margin. Yeah. Uh, whether you're, whether you're Scott and, and Michael Atlassian or whether you're us at Travel Live Apartments, we're essentially trying to do the same thing at a different scale. How did the idea for Luxury Escapes come up? Was that the sort of the next venture? I know you had deals.com as well and probably a few others. Yeah, so essentially we, we had this corporate apartments business that was going fine. It was going nice. We had this million dollars burning a hole in our pocket and I ended up uh, doing a trip to the UK where I met my uh, now wife and, and they saw a business called Top Table. And what that business was was it's a bit like Eat Club is now, if, if you or your listeners have heard of that, but it was a, a last-minute restaurant booking site which was really discount-driven. So if you were in London, you typed in your postcode or where you were and looked on a map and there was always restaurants where you could book online, which didn't really exist in Australia then, and you'd get a 20 or 30 or 40 or 50% discount. So it might have been for that night or the following night. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So I, I said to you, I mean, this is, A, this is great because you can book online. I, I hate calling up. I speak very fast and I hate calling up people and booking. And two, you're getting discounts and everybody loves discounts. I thought, this is a great idea. Why don't we do this in Australia? Because Jimmy didn't exist, so there was no bookability. And the only discount you could get was through something called the Entertainment Book, which existed, and but it was all offline. I came back to Australia, and we start, and it was our first e-commerce business. We had no idea what we were doing. I, I had a friend who was a great developer who was based in Israel, who, who was an absolute unicorn, who, who was product managing and coding the site for us. And so we'd get, tell him what we wanted, and he started coding this, essentially this restaurant booking site. And what was it called? That was called uh, My Table. And so we started doing this, and this is the back end of 2009. We were 30 at the time. And then Jeremy happened to go to Harvard to do some, got, somehow got a free, got, got a free course at Harvard. I, I, don't, I don't know how to do that. Uh, so he was in Harvard and I was somewhere and he, he saw a business called Groupon, which was the fastest business to ever hit a billion dollars in sales. And they were going really well in the States. And he said, look at this business called Groupon. And I looked at it and thought, A, this is a really weird name. And B, this looks like a terrible business. And he goes, they've got 50% margins. I said, this looks like a great business. <laughs> we, we said, Let's put this restaurant booking thing on hold because that means a lot of capital and we're going to have to get a whole marketplace of a thousand restaurants signed up. Let's instead do this Groupon thing and we'll build a database and then we'll get those database to do the restaurant thing later. So we thought we pivoted to the Groupon model and we called our business Zoopon, which is Groupon present and effectively started, we told our developer, forget that thing, what you're doing, let's do this new thing. And we started doing this daily deals business, which was essentially a marketing services business for small businesses. So we'd go into a restaurant or a spa and tell them, hey, guys, you want some new customers? Or we'll get you new customers. We just need a really good deal. So they give us a 50% off deal or $1 coffee or whatever it was, and we'd market that business to our, our customer base, which at the time was relatively small. But, but yeah, so that's sort of how we, how we started the deals business in 2010. Wow. So this was – and sorry, Groupon was operating then in Australia? So not yet. So Groupon was operating in the US and then they started to operate. They wanted to operate in Australia about a year later, but there was another company called Scoopon, which is run by Gabby and Hezzy Leibovich who had started Catch of the Day. Right. So Scoopon and those guys had 
got the name, had registered the name Groupon. So Groupon couldn't actually launch in Australia because the Scoopon guys owned the name Groupon. Oh. By coincidence, the Scoopon guys were suing us, so it was called Zoopon because we sounded too much like them. So Groupon was suing Scoopon. Scoopon Wait was a minute, Zoopon. I'm lost already. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, everybody was suing each other. And in the end, we settled with the Scoopon guys who are now great friends of ours and owners <laughs> of our part, owners of our business. The Groupon guys bought their name back from the Scoopon guys. And now there's just Groupon and us in the market in that that part of the business, but Groupon's had all sorts of problems in the states, and they were once valued at twenty six billion, and they're now valued at five hundred million. So oh. that's that's been a sad story, but they're still going. All right, and is there still Zoopon or Scoopon here? Uh, Scoopon's still here, and we still own it with the Catch Guys. Yes. So we're we're partners with them in that business, and Deal still exists, and Trudeau still exists. So they all still exist, but they're a bit smaller than they used to be. And I guess back to your earlier question, around that that time, we noticed that. The really good part of the business was that we were doing these travel deals. So we're doing these travel deals for places in country Victoria or even places in Thailand. And we realized that whilst doing deals with restaurants and, and day spas was great and great for them and great business, when we could sell a deal for a Thailand holiday, we'd sell it for $2,000 versus $50. Yet the cost of selling that deal was about the same. So we can right. definitely make a lot more money selling travel deals. So yeah. we started under the deals.com.au banner selling more and more holiday deals and realized hotels really liked it and they had great brands, they were getting lots of money. And then we realized in 2012, 2013, we realized this travel business is a really good business, but we needed to separate it out because on the deals.com site, there was everything from restaurants to day spas. We sold adult toys, we sold products, like there was all sorts of stuff we sold on there. And we, we couldn't really go into the Ritz Carlton and, and say, please advertise on our site next to these other things which weren't really on brand. So we create, went and created a separate brand called Luxury Escapes, which would be vaguely similar in concept, but we travel only and really focused on luxury higher-end hotels in a really beautiful environment. That's sort of the pivot away to Luxury Escapes in, mm-hmm. in 2013. So even just those few years sort of shifting between different online websites that basically sell stuff and you add a margin to it, how interesting, how chaotic, how much did you learn through those few years before you created Luxury Escapes? Yeah, a, a massive amount. And, and part, for that time, we, we sort of picked up two who really are co-founders now of the Luxury Escapes business. And I started, they joined us a little bit later, but one guy called Mark, who I actually went to uni with, who became our first sales guy. And he was just an unbelievable creative thinker. And, and together, really, the two of us and, and Jeremy and Josh, who was Another co-founder of the business, a bit, we bought Josh's business uh, a little bit earlier. Effectively evolved the Luxury Escapes business over that time. And we sort of fine-tuned what we do, fine-tuned our marketing, pivoted a lot of marketing to initially newspapers, which back then, even back then and now was, was sort of frowned upon and also very heavily online with Facebook and Google and, and affiliates. So we really learned how to market the business, learned how to work with customers. And I think a lot of what we learned during that those first deals years was really how to value a lifetime value of customer. So treat customers really well, over-invest in customer service and recognize that it's much cheaper to retain a customer than to, to buy a customer since it's what you're doing. And ultimately, the, the value of any business is the difference between the cost of acquiring a customer and the lifetime value of that customer, how much they spend with you over that lifetime as a customer of yours. So we learned all that stuff sort of almost by accident as part of the deals business. Did you see Luxury Escapes as a big vision in the beginning or was it small, oh, this will be just another little online business like the others that we've started and kind of moved around? I think by the time we started Luxury Escapes, we were probably turning over $100 million plus. So we were okay size at the time for a sort of homegrown digital business. But 
we never expected anything. I think we went into this business mm. and we went into our first, our first accommodation business. If we could earn $100,000 a year, we'd be really happy. <laughs> uh, and, and I think through that, and neither Jeremy, myself, or, or Mark, or Josh, none of us are really big spenders anyway. So we don't have lavish lifestyles. We don't own fancy cars or go on expensive yachts. So we don't, it was never really in our vision at all. We just want to create a really good business. And, and so like, we always got a kick out of having an article written about us or, or something like that or, or seeing an ad somewhere. Like it was, we just had low expectations. Uh, we were never venture capital. We were bootstrapped. We still are bootstrapped to this day. So when you don't have that venture capital behind you, we just didn't know what we didn't know. I'm still in all that stuff. Let's talk a bit about the funding. You said in the very beginning, back in the accommodation days, you know, you did, you were highly leveraged until you made that bit of windfall with the selling of the apartment. But were you always cash flow funded at the beginning of Luxury Escapes? Yes, yeah, so I guess it's a small point to make. And you're right. So we had that million dollars, which, which me and Jeremy used as our own seed funding. So we didn't have to go to family, friends, or angels. So you didn't go and blow it? Yeah, no, we invested this. We invested, and pretty quickly, the deals, the Zupon deals business started spinning back cash to us. So that was that was great. But what I didn't mention, there's a little bit of a side journey, is about a year after we did start our deals business, we went back to that food business. That that remember that restaurant business I talked about? The My Table booking. Yeah, the My Table one. Exactly. So but what Jeremy happened to be watching Dragon's Den one day in the UK and saw this business that was a takeaway food oriented business and said, This business is a lot better than the business we're talking about because takeaway foods just made more sense. So we said, well, let's not do the restaurant one anymore because it just seemed hard. Let's do a takeaway food one. So we pivoted my table to a takeaway. So we're running two businesses at the same time, deals and this my table business. Deals was making money and my table was costing us a lot of money because we went and signed up lots and lots of takeaway food places and put these printers in. So people, the, the, the model was people go online and they order their food for takeaway. You, you know it now as Uber Eats, but this was pre-Uber Eats, pre-delivery, pre-menu. Yeah. So we had, we were sort of one of the first, if not, I'm not sure if Menulog had started doing it then, but either Menulog or us were the first in Australia. So we were pumping a bunch of money into this business, running deals at the same time, and we just started to run out of money. It was costing us 100 grand a month to run this my table business. So eventually, oh. we were on the verge of shutting it down, and Jeremy was having sleepless nights and waking up in a cold sweat. And, uh, and then Yabby and Hesley Leverbeach from Touch of the Day, at the same time, had started or had bought a business called Eat Now. So exactly the same thing as my table. And I, I sent a message to Hesley saying, why don't we look at putting our my table business with Eat Now? And we've got lots of restaurants. You guys have a really good tech team, lots of money. It gives you a running start. Anyway, long story short, we end up getting a 10% stake in that Eat Now business because we didn't value our business at all. Jeremy couldn't sleep at night, so we were happy to shut it down. So we got this 10% stake in what we were pretty confident was going to be a great business that Hesley was running with a guy called Matt Byer who founded Eat Now. Anyway, long story short, a few years later, they merged with a business called Menulog, and the Menulog then mm. sold to Just Eat for almost a billion dollars. So our or our valueless business became part of that almost billion dollar sale, which is probably the luckiest transaction. We ended up having one percent or just under one percent of the, the final business because our stake got diluted when Eat Now Menulog merged. But having anything was was probably unjustified because our business was no good. But I'm just trying to do the maths quickly, and my maths isn't good enough. But it's still that's a lot of money. It was certainly a lot more money than we ever had. Uh, and it was enough for us to, to, well, we could have bought a house. We ended up investing in a bunch of other businesses, but it was enough for us to, to grow a portfolio of other stuff outside luxury escapes and not really worry about money again. 
because again, we don't have lavish lifestyles. Like, obviously, compared to many other people on your podcast who are billionaires, it's not that kind of thing. But we were more than happy with that. But obviously, Lux was always our main business, and that's what we're focused on. But this was just this really lucky break on the side that that was a, just a really unjustified windfall. Well, you call it a lucky break, unjustified windfall. I'm sure there was a lot of work that went into that. Well, really not. There was while we were running it, but ultimately the business we had was worthless. Yeah. So, wow. The Eat Now guys did an unbelievable job. So, Matt and Nate, and we're in business with those guys now on a new business, and we have been for a few years. What's the new business? New business is called Bookwell, which is Australia's largest beauty booking marketplace. So, if you want to book a haircut or a massage, you jump online and, and can book it. So, what essentially that is, is a really good platform for customers, but it's really a marketing business for salons. Mm. So, we can. We market for them and, and get them lots of new customers. And we have sort of millions of people a year going to the site. So Matt and Nathan have done an amazing job with that. And it's the same team. It's Gabby and Hezzy from Catch. It's Jude and myself back here. You clip the ticket every time there's a booking? Yeah, it's just a few percent. Well, for new customers, it's higher. But for if it's an existing customer, it's very, very low percentage. So okay. the great way for, for sellers to, to increase their business. Let's talk more about Luxury Escapes because this is really, you know, it's a very well-known brand. We've no doubt all seen the advertising. Some listeners will no doubt have booked holidays through Luxury Escapes. How would you describe it? Is it a booking.com? Is it a travel agent online that sells package deals? Yeah, it's, it's a bit of both. So you've got booking.com and Expedia are what's called OTAs or online travel agents. And they sell, they've got 300,000 plus properties on there. And they've got hotels, apartments, anything. They're a, a really, what's called a, a marketplace. So you can buy whatever you want mm. at what's essentially a, a par price. So what's called best available rate, so bar. What travel agent is, is a really bespoke. So travel agent's the opposite. You go into a travel agent and they'll give you, hopefully give you advice and it's right. really high end. And what we sort of do is try and, Almost straight off the middle. So if you think the way I like to compare us to is you look at a supermarket. And so when you go to a supermarket, having worked at a supermarket for a long time myself and done this, at the end of each aisle, there's special. So it could be barbecue shapes or it could be dynamo or it could be cabbage chocolate. And that's usually half price or significantly discounted. That's just for one week though. And then in the aisle, you've got everything. And that's always the same price or usually the same price. So imagine a booking.com is the aisle. And what Luxury Escapes is, is the end. So we only have a really small number of properties, or that, that will change. We have 50 or 60 properties on the side at one time, but it's about half price or give or take. So we're, we're like the end of the aisle. So you know that if you come to Luxury Escapes, you get a much better price than anywhere else, but you're not going to have the selection that Booking.com has. So there's obviously a compromise to that, and that's how we get the great deals we get is because we, we'll go to a property, to Ritz-Carlton Bali or to a Hilton Sydney or to anywhere and say, we're going to give you lots and lots of really great Australian or now international customers. We'll only sell this package for a two-week period. It's going to be valid for a year, but you'll only be on sale for two weeks and we'll sell tens of thousands of room nights for you. So it's discounted? Yeah, we need you to give us a really good price. Right. So our, we won't sell something unless it's significantly discounted compared to every other channel. Yeah. And the, the quid pro quo is a hotel gets lots of customers really quickly. We'll never just sell a room. A bed in the room. We'll sell breakfast and yes. spa and massage, all that kind of stuff. So you throw the great treatment in or the dinner or? Yeah. So the customers get a full holiday, an amazing once in a lifetime holiday, and the hotel can sell everything. So not just a room, because hotels make lots of money off other stuff. So hotels are making more margin off food and massages, and that's what customers want anyway. So we're able to actually create a wholesale retail spread, and we can spend a lot of time merchandising the properties. We'll film them. We'll... So we'll do lots of stuff that no other retailer does because right. we can focus on a lot less properties. Would you say, do you consider yourself a disruptor? We're still a, 
a really niche player. If you look at travel as an industry, and it lends itself to huge scale. So Booking.com is a $100 billion business. Expedia is a $30 billion business. Flight into less so now was a $5 billion business. I spoke to Screw recently. It lends itself to to scale, whereas we don't have a huge amount of scale. We're sort of approaching 500 million turnover. But I imagine Booking.com is in the hundreds of billions. So we're we're still small. We're much bigger than a small travel agent. We're much smaller than a Booking.com. So we're sort of sitting in the middle. I think the advantage of that is we can, someone can still call like Escape and speak to somebody sitting in our Melbourne office. So you can get really great bespoke customer service, but the breadth of a big agent or of a big booking.com. So we get our product is always better price than booking.com. So you're getting better service and cheaper product, which is always high end than, than the big expedient in the booking. So I think we, we perform a really nice service, but we still are a relatively niche player in yeah. the scheme of global travel. Did it change or evolve Luxury Escapes as you started to really grow? We're evolving every day. Look at where our growth has come from and continues to come from. We initially had five deals on the site, and we had 10, then 15, then 20. We used to be just in Southeast Asia, so we're great in Thailand, then Bali, then Vietnam, and obviously Australia as well. Now we have packages in the US and Europe. We have, we have our own okay. tour business. So yeah. you may have heard of business called Abercrombie and Kent, for example. We yeah. have a very similar tour product that in fact, we use the same suppliers in many cases as Abercrombie, which is a brilliant business, but we have 30%, 40% less cost because there's no middlemen. We have our own people on the ground. What's that called? Oh, it's Luxury Escape. It's, part, it's a tour oh, business part yeah, of Luxury Escape. Okay. So you can click on a tour vertical. But why would somebody trust you with a tour rather than Abercrombie and Kent who've got, you know, decades of reputation, et cetera? Yeah, and there's, there's no doubt some people who, who will only travel with Abercrombie or, or certain brands. But we have a, a pre- – in fact, we'll sell more – Products for Australians and Abercrombie will be to say African Safari. And we, they actually supply to us as well, probably enough. So we'll use some of their, their product. But there's a lot of people who've, who've bought with luxury. Some of them have gone to the Maldives with us and they've had an unbelievable holiday and they love it so much. And our luxury escapes customers seem to be really sticky. So mm. people who buy from us two or three times tend to buy from us forever because mm. they love the experience. So usually we, it's not often people buy their first thing as a $10,000 tour or a $20,000 tour. It's usually their second or third thing because they've experienced luxury escapes and love it. Then some people will just Splurge on a Budapest to Amsterdam boat cruise that we charter because it's half the price of an APT or Scenic, and it's mm. exactly the same boat because we don't have to pay a retailer thirty percent. Yeah, so we are the retailer, we're the wholesaler and the retailer, so we just save and we take less margin. So if you think that you're buying it, most tours you buy have fifty percent margin, we're less than half that. So A, we've got less margin. B, there's no middleman. So hence you're getting half price as a customer. Yeah, amazing. So it's a great business model, really. And can you only do that business model because it's online and you don't have heaps of costly storefronts and heaps of costly staff, really? That's certainly part of it. Part of it, we'd have to sell through Flight Center or other retailers. So if you're a, if we were selling through Flight Center, Flight would take 30% or 25% plus overrides plus plus. Whereas we don't have to do any of that. All we have to do is sell to a customer who's already actually getting our emails every day anyway. So our cost of selling is, is really low. Uh, we have a good marketing budget, but that's mainly to get new customers in, not to sell to our existing customers. Was there one decision you took, Adam, that really catapulted Luxury Escapes into this highly viable, successful online business that kind of put you on the BRW young rich list from 2014 on? Oh, I think it's a, I think it's a series of things. I think a lot of the stuff that Mark did in, this, in terms of structuring the deals we did through our hotels is really important. And also when we started advertising on in, in newspapers. So back then, you looked at open the travel section of the newspaper, there's virtually no one in there. Now, pre-COVID anyway, you'd open the travel section, there'd be 60 mm. people advertising in the travel paper. So we, we actually were able to possibly advertise in the papers. So we'd put an ad that cost, let's say, 20 grand, and we'd sell 30 grand worth of 
stuff. So you'd make money on the ad and you'd get free customers, which is, which is a really good way to grow our business. And then we discovered digital marketing and that was, was Josh and Mark leading that with, with Matt, our fantastic digital guy. And we've been able to grow our digital marketing expertise over the years. You mean on Facebook and Google or on your own site? Exactly, Facebook and Google. And obviously, we do our own site as well, but getting new customers yeah. have to come from somewhere else. So we're, we've got 1.3 million Facebook followers now, for over 300,000 Instagram followers now. So, and it's also helpful that travel lends itself to social media because it's such a beautiful, romantic, graphic, visual medium. So yeah, we're, we're lucky in that sense. If you're selling widgets, Facebook's pretty useless to you. If you're selling Maori holidays, it's really good. How hard was it getting deals from the travel operators, the product suppliers in terms of hotels, these very upmarket suppliers because, you know, they don't like to discount when you walk into the hotel? Yeah, exactly. Really hard. I the answer. It's taken us, especially the first time, once a hotel's worked with us once, they see how much money they make from us and they're much more willing to, to do another deal. But the first deal, Mark would spend a year or, or more getting those really early deals. As, as we became bigger and... So once you work with Ritz Carlton, it's much easier to work with the Hilton. And once you work with the Hilton, it's much easier to work with Amman. So you can sort of go through, almost step up through a luxury ladder in many ways. And we've got great partners with, with Accor and Hilton and Hyatt and all these fantastic brands who realize we make them a lot of money. And also we make a lot of money for owners. So hotels are owned by REITs or wealthy individuals or family offices and they're particularly managed by brands. So we can go into an owner and an asset manager and tell them, and asset managers often own a lot of hotels, so or advise a lot of hotels. So we can prove our bona fides on one hotel, and then that owner owns twenty other hotels. Right. So he'd say, "Well, can you do that same for these other ones as well?" So by helping owners, and over the years, just building up our case studies of how much money we can make for owners and how much profit we can generate for them, that's continued to give them these great. It's still hard work. We've got twenty, twenty-five, thirty people scouring the world every day, mm. speaking to, to hotel owners and operators, and, and negotiating these deals. You can take over a year to negotiate. Wow, because your trips are, you know, it's often five or even these six-star luxury with add-ons. They seem such good value. How do you make money out of the packages? So we'll enter a deal with a hotel where we pay them a, a rate and we need to make sure the hotel makes money as well. That's it. Otherwise, we'll never do yeah. a promotion with us. So we need to make sure the hotel's making money. We need to be able to market up ourselves and then make, need to make sure the customer's getting an amazing deal that's way better than anyone else. So we want to create a win-win-win and we've been lucky enough to be able to do that. Classic chicken-egg marketplace conundrum that until you've got scale, you can't get the deals. How do you, how do you get deals at scale? So we're just really lucky that uh, we've got that great traction with the newspapers mm. early that we could sell a lot of a lot of room nights and we could prove to the hotels we can we can sell, we can make you guys a lot of money, give us a good deal. Hence, we could then take that case study to another hotel who gives a good deal and we make them a lot of money and we just rinse and repeat. Well, the marketing, as you say, you you for a, a digital business, interestingly, you advertise pre-COVID a huge amount in traditional media like Sunday newspapers and Saturday travel sections. Now, that's no doubt a huge expense for you. Yeah, we, we look at all our marketing on a really strict return basis. So we want to try and attribute the marketing as best we can and make sure that it's profitable for us. And it's obviously harder on offline channels like, like TV and, and newspaper and radio, but we, we think we've got ways to do it. And ultimately, our whole business has been about trial and error. We know we don't know that much. <laughs> we'll try something and hopefully if it works, we'll do it more. And if it doesn't work, we won't do it again. Uh, so I think we've, we've always tried to be, I guess, pretty humble in the business yeah. and, and just go into it knowing that we're, we're kind of, we were four idiots <laughs> who were just trying to, trying to get a business going and, and just had a lot of luck along the way, really. 
Well, you've made yourselves a lot of money because you are on the BRW Now AFR Young Rich list or have been from 2014 on. But is the business profitable yet? And if it is, when did that happen? If it's not, when do you expect it to happen? I guess being bootstrapped, you sort of have to be profitable. From, and we've been profitable pretty much from day one. There was a few, I guess, in the early days, a few nervous moments when we probably bit off more we can chew with other businesses and, and investing in other businesses. But we've been lucky enough the business has always been profitable. It's what's called negative working capital. So because the average customer books a trip six months out, we hold a lot of funds. It's a very capital light business because we don't have storefronts, we don't have to build that, we don't have to build factories or anything like that. So it's that business part of the business model is, is really nice. Uh, so we're able to grow the business profitably and sustainably without VC money or, or anything like that or PE money. Uh, and, and yes, we've been really lucky in that regard. Did you ever nearly go broke or go broke, come unstuck? <laughs> I haven't gone broke, but there was probably a period in 2012 where that My Table business was sucking up a lot of money. Uh, deals was always profitable, but My Table was sucking up a lot of money and we bought a few other businesses. We bought a product business and we bought Josh's Ufer business and, and, and they hadn't quite integrated yet. So we, we came pretty close to the end of 2012 to just having a, and we ended up, I think, loaning the business a bit of money just to get over a short-term cash flow issue. So you came close to going broke, you say? Yeah, we were, I'm not sure we would have gone broke, but we were worried about it. We were certainly worried about it. And we, we, we actually, we, we loaned the business money and, Mark was able to get a couple of great deals and we got through it and, and pretty much within sort of six months, this was flying. So it was, we just knew we needed to get past that hump and which we did, but it was, there was definitely a, probably a couple of weeks where we were, we were nervous. Uh, and you certainly think your life flashing, your business life flashing yeah. before your eyes. And that's, so that was eight years ago, eight, nine years ago now. It's been a long time yeah. since, since then, but yeah, that was probably the closest we came. And not that the business wasn't profitable, so we probably just overextended ourselves. What are your markers of success? Is it the numbers of people who are on your email list, the amount of the travel transactions that you write each year? Is it the number of your Facebook followers? You mentioned 1.2 million Facebook followers. How many unique visitors to your website? One is business value in a way, and two is what, what I value as success. So I think there's two sort of different things. I think in terms of business value, it's how much money we're making and how, how fast we're growing that each and how fast is our top line growing? And what is that? Oh, we don't disclose that publicly, but it's it's not. It's, we've been profitable since pretty much day one. We disclose our our top line, which was sort of approaching five hundred million dollars pre COVID. What of of business that you're writing? Of sales through the till, essentially. Okay, and then obviously all you're paying out to your costs and expenses, and yeah, come out. Yeah, of that. we got cogs, and yeah, exactly. And paying exactly. for the trips. Travel's not yeah. a high margin business. Yeah, exactly. So travel itself is not a it's not a twenty percent EBITDA business. Not for many businesses I've ever seen. So it's, that's why travel business tends to generate a lot of TTV. And so I think flighting generates twenty two yeah. billion TTV and and makes well pre COVID is going to make three hundred million. So it's, it, it, they're not highly high margin businesses, but they can they can grow quickly and scale. They scale internationally very well, which was what what we're doing. But um, I guess in terms of how I view success is. Well, there's a couple of things. One is, is how, how strong, have we, have we built a business that's built to last? Will a business last 50, 100 years? Which is pretty rare in a business. Have we built a, a great brand that people recognize and that people love? And that's from an employee perspective, a team member's perspective, and from a customer perspective. And what's the answer to that? I think we're getting there. Uh, I think our brand recognition is probably in the, in the low 20s percent in Australia. So we're, 
in certain pockets of the country, we're probably close to 100%, but in other pockets, we're at zero. So I think we've got work to do there. I think as a business where I think our, our team like working for us, which is, which is great. I think our customers really like it. We've got one of the highest net promoter scores anywhere in the world in travel at 74. I think our customers really like us. Uh, and I think, I think people like working for us and, and I think our hotels love working with us. I think in many respects, we're, we're on the right track, but we've, we've got lots of work to do still. So you and your friend, your school friend Jeremy and co-founder own what, just over 50%, roughly, who owns the rest? Yeah. Uh, so so Josh and Mark, who are sort of other early early employees, co-founders, uh, have about roughly 10% and Gabby and Hesek and Catch have 20%. Uh, and some other employees have some and, and then we have some people who, who advised us and HTA, which is a public company, have oh. about 7%. So it's a bit of a diverse shareholding, but mostly some ex-employees. You were looking to sell it in September 2019. Why was that? We've, we've got a bit of a diverse shareholding base. And some shareholders to that credit have been super loyal to us over a number of years and, and we're saying we wouldn't mind some liquidity and the market's really good and, and business is going really well, but yeah. we are not getting out. Jim and myself were... We're always happy to investigate what we could get, but we love the business. Think there's this huge growth potential in it. So we were we were probably not full sellers. We weren't full sellers. We we're looking to some of our stuff, but certainly not all of it. And, and different shareholders have different perspectives. So I think we want as much about testing the market and seeing what people valued us at. But we weren't full sellers. This is profitable and paying dividends. So we were we were sort of happy to to keep going. Or if someone was willing to pay us an outrageous price, we were happy to take it. Uh, but we were very unlikely to sell in full and. And it turns out COVID came, so we just put the process on ice and we'll use it when things normalise. Let's come to March 2020. How has the COVID crisis hit you and hurt you? Yeah, I think like anybody in travel, it certainly affected revenue significantly. And it, really, it affected us a lot in March. And bear in mind, we're a business that sells the majority of our revenue is to international destinations. So that mm. hasn't gone to zero, but it was gone, it went pretty close. And even wow. now it remains pretty close to zero. But I think we're lucky in some respects. We've got a, a fantastic team and Cam leads a, a great, a great team in Melbourne, Sydney and, and around the world. So we're all able to, a lot of our expenses are, are marketing and people. So marketing, we can we pivot pretty quickly to zero because you're not selling it in a market. And with people, we just have a phenomenal team, and, and we have people coming to us saying, "I'm happy to go and leave without pay." I'm, I love working here so much. So we, have, on average, people drop to sort of three and a half days a week, uh, and people just started using leave. So very few people have to weren't getting paid because a lot of people had leave. Yeah. Uh, How many employees have you got, or did you have? Just over two hundred. Just over two hundred. Oh, did you have to lose any? We lost a very small number, but that was more just in the, in the ordinary course of business rather yeah, than right. necessarily. Being, there was obviously a link in terms of timing, but like most businesses will have some sort of redundancy or whatnot every year. So there was a linkage, but it wasn't 100% linked, but it was it was partly linked. But overall, we haven't, unlike saying the flights, and there were made thousands mm. thousands of people redundant. It's been, we're talking sort of low single digit percentage. Yeah. And the vast majority of it fortunately stayed on and, and we're really happy that we were able to do that. So did you have a good or a strong cash position when you went into the crisis? Any debt? No external debt. So how is it? Our customers pay us in advance. So what could have happened is our customers all could have asked us for refunds or, or something like that and that would have affected our cash position, obviously. Mm. But throughout, I think our customers' credit and we got so millions of phenomenal customers, the, the vast, vast majority of customers said, we actually bought a fantastic deal. We still want to go on that, that trip. Hmm. We understand that we can't go now. And what, so what we did was we spoke to all our hotel partners and got them to push out the expiry, often by two years. So 
90% plus of our customers just simply just remove that date and we'll, we'll pounce as soon as, as soon as borders open. So mm. that, and that, that was just fa- such a fantastic show of support from so many customers. There are some other customers who may have had an overseas package and now want to travel in Australia. So we gave them credits, which, which was great. And there's a small percentage of people who are, who are having real hardship and, and really needed a refund and fell under certain terms and conditions. And, and in some cases we were able to refund and in some cases we weren't. So. We always try and do the best we can for our customers. Yeah, it still must have taken quite a bit of negotiation to, you know, get the hotels to agree to pushing out deals to perhaps two years from now. Team did a fantastic job. They, they spent round the clock speaking to hotels, and we had everybody, almost the whole team, on customer service uh, yeah. for a period of time. So it was a unbelievable effort by by the team. And it, we acknowledge it wasn't like I think like any time business it wasn't perfect. Uh, I've, I've tried for months to try and get airline. Refunds. I'm still waiting. So I think we're, we're better than most, but we know we're not perfect and, and you just do the best you can in what is sort of an unprecedented situation. So to survive, and I'm assuming you think you will survive, what did you cut your costs from to? Uh, I, I'm not sure I can go into specifics, but they, oh. they, were, they were cuts in probably by 90%. So we were able to cut our costs 90% from what they were, which meant our revenues dropped to 90% as well. So yeah. we were able to sort of keep it in lockstep. And then JobKeeper was really helpful for us. So that, that was another reason we were able to keep everybody, pretty much everybody on, which was just great. So we were, yeah. we were worried at the time, but now you look back in hindsight, we didn't come that close in the end, but, but you certainly worry about the worst. We thought maybe no revenue for six months and, terms of re- and revenues come back really well in the last month, especially domestically. So just what's happened? I noticed you have started advertising luxury escape deals again in Australia. We had a partnership with Tourism in Australia who have been fantastic and we're working with Tourism Australia to promote Australian travel and we've been able to sort of sell thousands and thousands of Australian packages. Where so usually we'd we'd be majority global. Now we're almost all Australia, which is fantastic. We're able to support local hotels and local employees of hotels, which we hadn't been able to historically. Uh, so that's that's been really nice and it's great to see people travelling and booking in Australia. So do you think you've built resilience into your business uh, to be able to bounce back and and how do you think you'll come out of this? What might luxury escapes look like in 12 to 18 months' time? I think taking out COVID for, for a second, let's hope that we recover back to roughly what we were, 6, 12, 18 months. I think luxury escapes are going to go through either way. I think there's two really big opportunities for us. One is international, and we're already doing that. So we two years ago, almost all our sales were to Australian customers. In the last six months, that's almost 25% global. So we're selling a lot of packages to Singapore and UK and US yep. and, and New Zealand. So a lot of our, our packages, but bear in mind, if we get a great package to the Maldives, it's just if not more applicable to somebody living in Singapore than in someone living in Sydney. So travel is inherently global, which is why yep. booking.com is a okay. great story. So there's the international piece and there's how do we grow our product range? So how do we get more of the aisle? We're not, so we're not just the end of the aisle. We want to be the aisle as well, but not confuse customers. So building some amazing products and, and probably around the time you release this podcast, we'll be launching our, our last minute product, which we're super excited about, which is instead of having an early bird product, you'll be able to go on the site and say, what are the great deals around around me? So it could be in Victoria, in New South Wales, in Queensland, in New Zealand, for the next week. So the old last minute concept, which nobody's done for five or six years, we're super excited to bring that back. And we'll launch with 2025. 20, Every week we'll have 20 or 25 fantastic last minute offers that isn't, aren't available anywhere else on any other site or, or agent. Adam, I'm asking all my guests this. What is the biggest lesson you've learned along your relatively short journey? 
Oh, I think there's a few lessons. I think getting great people as early as you can is, is really important. Uh, I think as, a, as an entrepreneur, you sort of do everything yourself. The sooner you can find and be able to really trust fantastic people. I used, to, I used to want to do all the HR stuff until I had an amazing HRD who, who still works for us, Julia. So getting really good people is so critical to the success of a business. We've got an amazing CPO team. We've got a fantastic CFO. We've got a brilliant team, that uh, a great CEO. We've got a, a great team that I'm now comfortable letting run the business, yeah. whereas seven, eight years ago I wasn't. So getting a really good team, we, and we should have done that earlier. That's certainly one thing. We learned probably the hard way, whereas so I sort of didn't have a day off in nine years. I probably could have had more days off if, if I got a better team in earlier. What are you obsessed about at the moment? I've been a business writer, as you know, for a number of years, and, and I think there's a lot of things I care about. Certainly, the geopolitical situation is probably more troubling than it's been for a long time. Um, and on a Friday night, I started playing golf again for the first time in 10 years. So, oh, well you know, done. Contrast. No doubt you've become obsessed about golf, have you? I'm getting there. I've never been a great golfer because I can never play that much. So, being able to sort of hand over a lot of the day-to-day has allowed me to start playing a bit more. So I hope I can get to sort of where I'd love to get to. But uh, And also spend more. I've got a three and a five-year-old. So I was able to last year and when I handed over the CEO reins, take a two-month trip of a lifetime with the kids and, and, and my lovely wife, which I never could have done before then. So it definitely gives you a new – sort of lucky enough to have a, have a perspective that can start doing stuff that, that I wouldn't have been able to two years ago. Fantastic. How much of your success is your skills, your intelligence, your energy, in other words, your innate abilities, and how much is luck? I think there's three barriers. I think the first thing, you've got to be super lucky. So you've got to be born in the right country to the right people, with unfortunately the right skin colour in many respects. So there's probably 98% luck to be born in the right place. And then there's maybe 100 million people who have that 2% luck. And then for that 2%, you've got to have a lot of skill and hard work. Then you need a lot of luck again. <laughs> there's almost three levels. There's luck, there's skill, and there's luck to be able to grow a business and have lots of luck and timing. And we were at the right age at the right time. So 99% luck, 1% skill maybe. Adam Schwab, it's been a great pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining me on Build It, They'll Come. Thanks, Alan. That was great. I hope you enjoyed Build It, They'll Come. Let me know via Twitter at Helen underscore Daly. Better still, let your family, friends and colleagues know. Share it around your networks and I'd love you to give it a star rating to make it easier for others to find us. Be sure to subscribe as there are plenty of upcoming episodes you don't want to miss with more amazing innovators and entrepreneurs on how they turned their light bulb idea into an empire.